0: Welcome to the SoCal Hymns Podcast. This is Sarah Richardson, and today we are featuring a conversation with Dr. Shafiq Robb, Senior Vice President and System Chief Information Officer of Rush University Medical Center and Rush System for Health. Dr. Shafiq Robb is an innovative, passionate, and servant leader. He joined Rush University Medical Center in January of 2017. In the short time he's been there, he has made significant impact in healthcare by connecting the EHR with social services software to provide clinical care and services tailored to social determinants of health. He is a leader in AI and machine learning and is the incoming chair of Chime. He previously served the Hackensack Meridian Health System in New Jersey as Senior Vice President and Co-Chief Information Officer, where he spearheaded the IT and clinical engineering strategies in alignment with the network's strategic priorities in the development of a clinically integrated health network as well as expanded academic and research activities. In 2017, he was awarded the Champion of Consumer Access by National Association for Trusted Exchange. He received the 2016 Cybersecurity Leadership Innovation Award from Center for Digital Government and Intel Security, as well as a Distinguished Citizen Award from the Boy Scouts of America. Dr. Rabb is a nationally recognized inspirational and visionary health information technology executive who has been named the 2015 Innovator of the Year by CHIME. Dr. Rab is an unconventionally technically savvy executive who has been named Becker's top 100 hospital CIOs to know with a unique blend of deep technical knowledge as well as excellent information technology and healthcare leadership skills. Dr. Rabb is a founding member and the former president of the New Jersey chapter of HIMSS. He is also an ONC Health IT fellow as well as a former board member of the Jersey Health Connect HIE, a certified healthcare chief information officer and fellow of CHIME and the American Health Information Management Association and the New Jersey Public Health Association. Shafiq, thank you for being with us today to talk about artificial intelligence and 5G and the ethical biases and IT progress for us as an industry in this arena.
1: Thank you for inviting me, Sarah.
0: So you are really a pioneer in, in talking about these. I've seen you at Chime talk about some of these. You've been talking about it at Hims. Tell us really about the future of 5G, how it affects AI, and what that means for us as consumers, uh, as patients, across the board, but really like the biggest impact that you think it's going to have for us in the healthcare arena. So
1: uh, as we are progressing in life, uh, what's happening is that, that the bandwidth is increasing, that means the connectivity and the speed at which we connect and move is increasing. That means from voice to video, and how fast and how much information can be sent. So in the beginning, we just had cellular phone calls, and then came the LTE 3 and LTE 4, now LTE 5G. 5G means nothing but the fifth generation. Uh, presently in the US, in the six to nine months, you will see the announcement of 5G, which means uh, cellular connection can be at one gig uh, per second. But it's not only cellular connection. For the first time, cellular connection will m- meld with wireless connection and LAN and VAN. That means your wide area network, local area network, and cellular network will become one. What that means is that the transportation of information becomes faster. Ultimately, as 5G goes on and uh, the, re- the actual 5G starts implementation throughout the whole United States, will go up to 10 gigabit per second, and ultimately 20 gigabit per second. That's a lot of data going back and forth. So video can happen in nanoseconds and milliseconds. Uh, so that is the first impact. But as that will happen, so will denial of service, so will cybersecurity, so will other good things or bad things that comes with speed that will come. So that is the uh, talk about five G. But the, there are multiple benefits. So as you ask the questions, I will try to answer about that. As far as artificial intelligence is concerned, so we moved from the era of steam engines, and then which introduce a lot of mass productions and railways and things like that. Then came the electricity, which uh, added more power, and then came the computing power. This era of artificial intelligence became possible because computing speed have become faster and quicker and more powerful than ever. So mathematical calculation, which can reach human cognitive function is for the first time possible. I believe by the, by the year 2030 or beyond 2035, uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence for the first time will reach human cognitive level. Until such time, we have time. That means between 2020 and 2035, we have a 15 year of gap by which as we are introducing artificial intelligence, and the quantum computing is coming, which will again enhance the computing speed, is how humans decide how they will use the AI. So the burden of ethics is never so far required today than it ever was. That means the the decisions that the human race will take today will totally decide the rights of humans And the rights of the machines that we produce and the robots we produce will be decided in these two decades. That is why this is so monumental. 5G will turn into 6G, and speed will become instantaneous, and human compute and artificial computing will become equal to human computing and then beyond. That means what 10 million humans can think together, the machine will think faster than that. I hope I framed it not in a scary way, but in a very uh, sophisticated way. I hope so.
0: You always frame things in, in ways that encourage people to think about things a little bit differently. So when we hear this, like you know, twenty twenty to twenty thirty five, it's this formative time where things get to be so much faster that data is ubiquitous with with the immediacy of what's happening today. How do we as humans think about where to best engage artificial intelligence and where we use a computer to allow us to make decisions or make recommendations that we can follow? And then where do we put our brain power otherwise going forward where computers can't help us be more effective?
1: So first of all, we have to be, uh, uh, I mean, I can't say this because I'm not a perfect human being myself, but what we have to recognize that every action we take and all the biases that we have gathered as we grow up in different cultures and different societies, they will all have effect on artificial intelligence. So we somehow have to become better human beings. We have to become peace-loving, nice people. Uh, What that means is that we have to think about cybersecurity. We have to think about validation. We have to think about how these things will be controlled. We have to figure out whether our techniques are verified or not and whether there is a good governance or not. People talk about all these things, but let me give you an example so that people can understand. If you go and ask in the industry, who should be the CEO of a a car company? If you look in the last 30, 40 years, look at all the CEOs, and you put that into the machine learning, it will produce a five-feet or six-feet person who looks Caucasian, and has a different uh, look for it. Uh, And then it will say that the next CEO should look like that. So we can't input that information that way. Uh, So as we are teaching the machine, it's easier to teach a child, but it's a hot dog, they will understand it. So ethics, biases, and the way we teach the machine to come up with cognitive function, we just have to be careful because Our ultimate goal is to produce beneficial uh, uh, things from the artificial intelligence. We're not trying to, uh, 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 like an undirected intelligence. So we're not trying to unleash uh, uh, a crop. Like we have techniques to know when the weather will be good, bad, and how we can sow the seeds. And we will know that what part of the land will produce how much yield so as we get those information, as we are getting better at it, we have to use it for the greater good of the, of the community and of the world. And the biases that we have now, uh, for example, let me give one more example so you can understand. We're doing CRISPR. We're doing gene editing. So what that means is that people who have more money, they will have off- offsprings that will have less diseases and they will be more stronger than who can't afford it. So while we are doing all this increase in computing power and getting better information, we just have to be careful how we are using this for the greater good of humanity.
0: There's been a recent uh, interest in an author, Yuval Noah Harari, and you know, he really talks about the difference between creating utopia versus dystopia, and it depending on your values when it comes to the use of technology and artificial intelligence. How do we navigate that space into into using what we are creating for good versus bad, and is there an ethical line that we have to draw in the use of of healthcare?
1: So that oh my God, what a what a nice question, what a deep question. Uh, I think the time has come for like you know when when healthcare became better, we used to teach biomedical ethics, uh, uh, the sanctity of life. People can choose that, uh, whether they want to accept care or not. So as we are getting into healthcare and as we are getting into artificial intelligence and as we are putting machine learning models now, people who are doing this, like us, we are one of them, Uh, I am one of them, Uh, we need to think uh, our actions and we need to be Careful, uh, and we need to be cognizant that everything that we are doing will have an effect. So, I don't know how else to say, other than uh, before we do anything, or before or as we are doing things, we have to learn. And we also have to create machines that will not become uncontrollable. Like if machines become better than us, and one day they think, and humans are inefficient, all they have to do is take oxygen away from the environment and we are done. So we're not doing that. You know what I'm saying? We're not doing that. So in short, uh, we have to really think about how do we share benefits for better health? How do we share access to powerful tools? How do we extend learning opportunities for all? Uh, uh, How do we how and when do we add genes? Like, when is it okay or not? And how do we share income? And how do we protect the displaced workers? Uh, uh, Like, these are all societal questions that will come up. And I'm not learning enough to answer all that. But I've started thinking those things.
0: Well, as a physician, you have often partnered with either vendors, uh, peers, and really industry thought leaders and how to develop solutions that are going to bring us forward and, and make a difference in what we do every day. And we are really headed towards what is coined dataism. And it's really that whole faith around algorithms and big data and a point where artificial intelligence surpasses human intelligence. How, as a physician, do you see where we are headed with artificial intelligence as a way to truly augment the art and science of delivering care?
1: So in the next 10 to 15 years, so I I think 20 years is the maximum because by that time, quantum computing will be in place and people will be rapidly putting information, the known information that we have. Uh, I think there is a tremendous opportunity for discovery. There is a tremendous opportunity for curing cancer, for curing all diseases that we have known to mankind. Uh, There is an incredible amount of uh, potential of understanding all genetic disorders that happen and how to uh, send a virus inside and edit those genes so that people can be cured of thalassemia. People can be cured of macular degenerative diseases. Uh, We we can generate new types of structure that will help people to walk after spinal injury. So all those things that we cannot do now, they will happen because of 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 the cure that will come and the discoveries that will come. As well as we will also know as we are born Uh, By the time we are born and by the time we become one year old, we will know that what environment we should be in to live longer, to have a better quality of life. So all those will be available. And to check and balance human behavior, those information will also be available. So I believe that the partnership between the physician community, the scientific community, the student community and the political community—they will all meld, uh, uh, and uh, there will be things performed uh, and surgeries performed that we never did before. So it's a good thing. The only problem is if we turn it around and we start not understanding the context of the social, political policies, and if we somehow not share that with all like for all of humanity people who will be left behind that is what i worry about because uh, i don't know uh, we are as ma- as humans are we mature enough uh, uh, to to manage this new knowledge and new wisdom
0: Shafiq, you bring up a question for me that says, because we can, should we? You know, as we create an environment where we can live well beyond current averages, some forecast 120 plus years, what is our responsibility? It's not an impossibility to believe that we can live beyond current lifespan expectations. And what can the planet actually sustain?
1: So the the human bones and the human structure uh, today can sustain up to 105 years of age. Uh, I believe... If we live beyond that, then we'll be living in exoskeletons so that we can move around and do things. Uh, but you're right about the planet. So by that time, in if you don't discover how to uh, run and drive faster than the present rocket system, we'll not be able to find another planet to live and sustain. So that will be, oh my God, I, I don't know how to answer that, Sarah. That's a very, very uh, uh, difficult question to answer. Uh, I mean, longevity, everybody wants. Uh, human body, everybody wants to be strong till they're 120. Uh, I don't know how humanity will survive until they find to live on Mars and, 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 and other moons of other planets.
0: It's always fun to to ideate with you, Shafiq, and think about the the what ifs and the and the where we're gonna be in you know honestly 10, 15, 20 years. But if we're bring it back home for some of our listeners, and let's be honest, most of us in healthcare today are grappling with um, that final optimization of EMRs, looking for the right opportunities to bring solutions in-house that augment the experience of the consumer and, and allow everybody to be more connected without actually having to go into the facilities. How do you see us being able to use 5G to do some of those basic blocking and tackling interactions with our providers and with our health systems that are integral to keeping us healthy and being able to live to, say, 125 once that's an option for us?
1: So this is a much simpler question, thank God, because you had to make me think what's going to happen in 25 years. Uh, uh, One of the good things about LTE 5G, uh, and as forward goes to full 5G, Uh, will be the ability to have access to information anywhere. That means whether you are at home, whether you are at a desert, you can have your ultrasound done, you can have even your MRI done, and it can go from one end to the other end without much latency. So that means the present picture, the present things can happen. Second, if you're opening up a clinic in rural Iowa, or in rural Nebraska, or in some remote hill in California, as long as you have uh, access to a cellular LTE 5G, if it does not give you one gig, it will at least give you 700 megabytes per second. You can open up your laptop and have access to the, uh, to the medical record, you will have access to the lab, to, to the other things. And you can also use your ophthalmoscope and your stethoscope to diagnose the person from there or from distance to look at a person and give a diagnosis. So that boon, that gift of of having virtual care, that gift of having care anywhere uh, is possible. Well, that possibility will enhance. The electronic health record, if you wait about a year and a half to two years, by that time, ambient speech will be possible. That means... A discussion between a doctor and a physician will not be a problem. They will just talk like normal people do, and it will automatically go into the EHR. The part about the interoperability and the part about the billing, we still have Medicare in the United States. We still have Medicaid. We still have commercial payers. Uh, They will have their way of getting the billing. So as long as we have this kind of billings to deal with, those will those problems will still stay. But as the care moves to the periphery, uh, which will happen, that means the uh, expense will decrease, uh, I think so, for the payers, because they may not have to pay for the big building visit of the doctor. Rather, they can pay for the lesser care for outside. So in coming back to the real life, 5G itself will provide care where you are, Whenever you are, however you want it, from anyone you want it, as long as you have the insurance or the Medicare or the Medicaid possibility to pay. The only request I have for all those people is that if people cannot pay, please still allow them to have some care for the people who have nothing because they do need help too.
0: Digital exhaustion is real, and next digital generations reach the outer limits of connectivity. Do we need solitude to mentally survive the Internet of Everything? And does it allow us to create access to care without having to be in a mega metropolis, which can exacerbate this phenomenon?
1: So the, the skeptic in me is going to say something which will haunt me for the rest of my life. But I'll try to be okay with it, and I'm going to say it nicely. As humans, we are greedy. So people who want to make money and things like that, uh, it'll be hard. But as time goes by, we as humans will need solitude because we do need that moment of peace. The yoga, the meditation people, the walk, the scuba divers, the people who just go somewhere. Humans need that. So however much money you want to make, you will still need that. As far as the care is concerned, care will reach to people. But here is the thing, is the ability to pay for it. So until unless we find a way, a mechanism, whether it's the underdeveloped country or whether it's our own country of the homeless people, like who pays for it, or we find a mechanism of taking care of the most vulnerable in a nation is considered great when it takes care of its most vulnerable. And we, as humans, have to become that. Only then we will succeed in our endeavor of AI. So I didn't want to say that in the beginning, but that's what I'm trying to tell you. We have to become better human beings. That is the key to all this.
0: No, you're absolutely right. And I think about just even having conversations with people day to day and and how to Go to a restaurant and you see couples sitting across from each other and they're both on their phone and I'm like whatever happened to you know to an informal conversation or to like date night and being able to interact with one another effortlessly and sometimes it's really hard for people to connect without their devices literally to have conversations. So I'm gonna I'm gonna throw something out there for you, Shafiq. Let's just pretend it's 2030 and uh, a lot of these things that you have talked about are are happening and we see people living well past the normal lifespan and doing so in a healthy manner so that it's not just the end of life care that is costing the most for the healthcare industry, that we're, we don't really get sick till the very, very end, or we can even mitigate that. How, how do we as a society plan for that economically? I mean, if really today we think about, I'm going to retire when I'm you know 59 and a half, 65, 70, where do you see it pushing us in the ability to actually sustain our uh, economy when it comes to people living 30 years past what we plan for, uh, from the Medicare and our Medicaid perspective?
1: Man, my God. So... Uh, First of all, I have to tell you that in 30 years' time, uh, people would have, uh, they will not need phones. So you will have implants, and you will know already what's happening at all times. And you will know everything about the other person, and the other person will know about everything about you. But people will figure it out how to hide it too, because there will be other uh, entrepreneurs like me and you who will try to uh, make sure we can stop things from happening, but as far as economy concerned, and living by 30 years, so we are human beings, uh, and human. I believe in the uh, in the creativity of human beings. Uh, they will figure it out how to live on water. They will figure it out how to live on mountains. Human beings will figure it out uh, how to live in a crowded world. But when it becomes too crowded, then it will become chaotic. There is no doubt about it. And uh, maybe we'll figure it out how to live under the underground. So human beings will figure it out. Uh, that is one thing I can bet always on, that we as the human race, we are ingenuous people, and we do find uh, ways of doing things. Our forefathers or our ancestors did not have a fax machine, but they did figure it out, how to communicate from one end to the other end, even though they had to walk over the Bering Street and come to North America, go to South America. So they did those things. We will overcome this one way or the other.
0: You bring these types of thoughts and ideas to your medical centers, whether it's been at Hackensack or at Rush. Tell our listeners what you are most excited about and your ability to innovate and deliver and be an entrepreneur in the environment where you are today.
1: So first, I'll tell you the bad thing. When I said that we will be using a humanoid, uh, everybody laughed about it and everybody thought that was very uncanny because uh, uh, in our culture, we're not used to seeing a robot or a humanoid being your assistant and telling you that she or he will take your blood pressure and you can stand and they can do simple jobs. So that's a cultural thing that we have to overcome. Uh, As far as 5G, as far as AI, so even before we did the AI part, presently we can predict in our ED who will leave without being seen. We can tell you when we give an appointment who will be the no-shows. So we can do something about it. Bring the person a cup of coffee, bring the person a newspaper, show more care, become better, have a better patient experience. So that our guests who came to see us stay with us, our guests who will not show and come up with us, so that we can understand their problems and their reason for not coming, and perhaps we can help them overcome that. So it is helping us to become a more patient, engaged uh, institution. So I think that our in our institution, it was we uh, I try to sell the idea through that way that first, of course, if, the, if people stay unseen, we do have an economic gain, but it does allow us to serve our patients better. So that's one way we are trying to uh, educate our senior leaders and our people in it. Secondly, what we are doing is that we're asking uh, questions from everybody. What questions you want to answer? What things are, are, are of value to us as an institution? And what is of value to our community, and what is of value to healthcare, and we are trying to answer those questions, uh, and are also trying to understand those questions in the in the context of our institution, in the context of our society, and in the context of overall healthcare. So, by virtue of that, that has allowed us uh, uh, to 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 help everybody embrace it, five G and connectivity. That's helping us uh, to save money by not putting drops, uh, you know, as you put a cat, CAT 5 or CAT 6 or CAT 7, uh, depending where you are living, it costs from $500 to a $1,300 a drop. So if you have a cellular connection that can go over van land, that saves you a lot of money if you have a good DAS. So we are solving it both ways. One Number one thing is that we're solving it by taking care of our patients of our community and providing value. Second is that it is also helping us uh, save a few bucks.
0: Shafiq, you and I have been in the industry for quite a while and these conversations are not new to us and there's something we like to bring up in, in really everyday conversation. For listeners or for those who are new to the industry and they're really trying to get their arms around you know, what AI and 5G and the impact on healthcare is gonna mean, what do you recommend in terms of their ability to increase and broaden their knowledge base?
1: So Sarah, that's a very good question. What I would recommend to people is that first of all, AI is for all, machine learning is for all. And there are, if you just Google that AI uh, learning, there are multiple resources available on the web. Uh, Even Microsoft, Google, all these big companies, they offer different types of free software. Even Apple has some uh, uh, coding things available. Uh, Learn that because the tools are available, whether it's R, whether it's Python, whether other tools are available. There are also uh, places in the cloud where you can go and run run your own models. But the biggest key in all of this is to understand that your data collection and your data has to be clean. That means if you have wrong data and if you're putting the wrong things in, then your answer will be wrong. So my only request is that uh, go learn it, try it, and uh, uh, Google the AI and learning, and people will find those websites and places and, and start practicing it. That means once you get better at it, then you'll be surprised that the data you have, whether it's structured or unstructured, they both will give you phenomenal results, and then you can get better at it.
0: Shafiq, it's always so fun to talk about all these ideas with you. Our listeners are going to want to reach out to you and just, you know, think about things more broadly and and share some ideas with you and and get your perspective because one of the best things you do is provide an honest point of view when it comes to things that you were asked about. How should people reach out to you if they want to follow up or ask your opinion on where we are headed as an industry?
1: So I think uh, there are three ways to communicate. Uh, The fourth way, is the, it will be the hardest, but I'll tell you. Uh, One is my Twitter account, at CIO Shafiq. That's my Twitter account. Uh, People can send me emails, that's also easy, ssr at rush.edu. And of course, uh, people can text me, 609-304-5342. So there is, I mean, there's no secret about it, but uh, uh, there, there could be things that I cannot answer So uh, when you ask questions, please don't ask me how to end world hunger. I've not thought about it yet because I'm not that good.
0: I'm sure, though, you'd have an idea for others to follow. So for those of you that have a chance to follow Shafiq, he is incredibly well connected on all social platforms, constantly connecting and sharing ideas with others. Shafiq, thank you for taking the time to spend with us and our listeners today. Um, Our conversations with you are always phenomenal, and I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Sarah, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to the SoCal Hymns podcast series. Special thanks to Esteban Parano, our audio and mixing engineer, for helping us to produce our podcast series.